Hi and welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Dharani Parthasarthi. Dharani has many years of experience in journalism and strategic communications. She's a climate activist and communication specialist. She has worked for over a decade in media and strategic communications at the national, regional and international level. She's currently based in Bangalore, India, working in global communications with the International Secretariat of Climate Action Network or CAN. The CAN International Secretariat, if I can expand, functions as a steer for the Climate Action Network, the world's largest network over 1300 civil society organizations in over 100 countries fighting the climate crisis. I am Kirti Manjan and I will be your host for today. Hi Dani, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you on here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm going to start by asking you this. Uh you started off as a journalist at the Hindu. How did you make your way to becoming a senior communications officer at the uh, Climate Action Network? So yeah, I did start my career as a journalist. So I worked with the Hindu in Bangalore on their news uh, desk for a couple of years. You know, my main interest was journalism but more specifically on storytelling and I always had an interest in environmental issues and so after I worked in the Hindu for a few years, I went abroad to to study. I studied I did a masters in global studies with a focus on environment and following that i moved more into strategic communications working on climate change and food and agriculture issues so i worked first with the food and agriculture organization in new delhi and then subsequently with another international organization called cjiar which is also on agriculture research and i worked in the climate division right. and then i moved on to to can because i wanted to work more on international policy and climate policy Right, and you work with can members on communication strategies. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this kind of work entails? Yeah, I mean the communication uh, with can is slightly different from uh, traditional communications in a typical organization, and this is because it's a member-based organization. So it's a network of over one thousand three hundred. civil society groups in over 120 countries right. um and all of them working for the same goal which is on uh, addressing the climate crisis right so the communication work in can is is very much entwined with policy advocacy so it's you know basically two sides of the same coin in terms of putting out our policy and political objectives and then our communication strategies on how we will influence governments through our positions we come to an understanding on a common position on various issues under climate change it's more strategic communications it's more narrative building it's more on uh, message alignment and it's again because it's member driven it's about sort of forming a consensus for how we want to to communicate on a specific issue okay i did read that can strives to uh, you know hold governments accountable to act on the climate crisis can you give us a couple of examples when you know you could actually see impact of this yeah i mean it's so one of the areas that can focused on is that we are the officially accredited environmental group for a number of 
multinational fora. So this includes the UN climate uh, talks, which are put together by the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Mm-hmm. And this happens twice a year. So we have the big summit that happens at the end of the year, uh, at the end of a calendar year. And then there's a meeting that happens sometime in June as a sort of technical preparation meeting. Right. Apart from this, we have the IPCC meetings uh, that take place every few years on different assessment reports. And then we have the Green Climate Fund meetings. So there are various multinational fora and CAN has a status as observers in the civil society observers. So this is a really important function because these are closed meetings with governments close to the public. Right. And so the only access in, in some ways that the public has is through civil society observers. Right. And right. This means that the civil society observers in the room have are the only people essentially who can hold governments to account or flag uh, very concerning developments that are happening in the negotiations. So typically these negotiations are through a consensus of all the countries in the room. And so, for instance, we've seen the really, really regressive role that the United States has been taking, for instance, since Trump came uh, into power and they've actually said that they will withdraw from the Paris Agreement, which is the climate pact that all countries have uh, ratified to keep warming below 1.5 degrees. And the United States is, yeah, I mean, has decided to withdraw from uh, the Paris Agreement, but they continue to be part of the climate negotiations. So this is where they sort of do put a span on the wheels when it comes to taking very progressive action on things like climate finance, on issues like loss and damage. Loss and damage is the irreversible impacts of climate change where people cannot even adapt to. So it's rising sea levels, desertification. So part of our role has been to flag uh, countries that don't show up with good faith. So this could mean the way they block language on final text. So we've we've had a lot of can advocacy that has pushed back on this. And we do this through with the media, with knowing when we want to speak to the media, knowing when we have to do lobbying, you know, just with negotiators. So it's really, there's no one sweeping, you know, way to, to put this, but there's a lot of harm reduction, which is basically, and also pushing for stronger action. So I mean, the IPCC reports, one that comes to mind where, yeah, we pushed a lot for the 1.5 report uh, mm-hmm. that came out in 2018. And it was a very concerted effort from civil society groups to push for the strongest possible report that could come out from the IPCC. I was very intrigued when you mentioned that you observe, lobby, and then the whole documentation process comes into being. Can you elaborate on this, please? Yeah, I mean, so we tend to be in the room, so to speak, you know, when these negotiations are happening. And these uh, negotiations are typically very long drawn because they go through almost every word in the in the text. And so when there is consensus that all governments and all parties are in agreement, then they sort of what we call as gavel it through or they sign it off. So obviously... This is a process. Sometimes it's open to the public through maybe a live streaming or whatever, but not many people are going to be that interested. I mean, a lot of this is really the details, you know, and right. not yeah, yeah, yeah. Person 
yeah, may not follow it to that extent, so, which is all the more reason why people who are in the process and civil yeah. society organizations, yeah, I mean, we spend an awful lot of time, even at these UN sessions, literally reading every word in the text to see if that it's reaching higher ambition and not just recycling old commitments or regressing on old commitments. Right, okay. I happen to something in your profile called the Croissant Conspiracy Communications Group. Is this something you can talk about? Yeah, sure. I mean, the Croissant Conspiracy uh, Communications Group was actually a network of uh, communicators who came together before the Paris Climate Talk. So that was the landmark climate summit in 2015, where the Paris Agreement was uh, adopted. And, you know, this group was just a sort of network of communications people from all over the world and from different places and different sectors. So not just like typical climate communicators, but people working on communications and human rights or, you know, people working with the labor unions or with the financial sector. So it was an attempt to kind of bring in a diverse sort of cross-section of people who were committed to working on climate, but maybe not doing it in their day job, but like really getting perspectives from from different people. So it's a kind of loose network. It's a closed group because the idea is that yeah, some of the strategies and things are really, it's, it's also sort of a safe space to test ideas and to brainstorm. And it's almost like a fun group, but it has a very serious uh, objective. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, bring right, right. People together. Okay. I mean, when you talked about your career, you also said you worked on climate change affecting uh, smallholder farmers in the South Asian continent, subcontinent, sorry. So what kind of policy changes have you seen in your time to kind of enable this adaptation in the agriculture sector? Yeah, I mean, a big part of my early work in climate change was on working on agriculture and specifically on smallholder farmers adapting to a changing climate. So obviously, South Asia is very vulnerable to climate change. And because a huge part of the population is in the agrarian sector, it's all the more reason that it has a very strong impact on people's livelihoods and on food security and, and poverty. I mean, there's been a lot of focus on, for instance, providing insurance to Mm -hmm. to farmers. So, yeah, making sure that there is a level of insurance that people can have to tide over very difficult periods because we're seeing increasing droughts, increasing failure of crops. There's also the issue of, you know, food prices and food price volatility, um, making sure that there are new kinds of species or crops that are adapting to the changing climate. There, I mean, obviously, the, you know, even from the India, the government is very committed to protecting agricultural workers because they form such a huge part of the population. But also because when agriculture fails, you have such a ripple effect of consequences. We have distress migration, you have poverty, you have food insecurity. And all of this particularly affects women you know, who often bear the brunt of these impacts the worst. So, yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing issue, but it's not something that can be fixed very easily. And I think uh, it also puts an enormous pressure on farmers to adapt to climate change because the pace at which climate change is happening Mm -hmm. is something that I think it's very difficult for ordinary farmers to adapt. And you see that from generation to generation, people are leaving the agricultural sector because it's becoming so unviable. Um, is there a particular issue of climate change that is kind of close to your heart 
and have you done any kind of work on this issue? Yeah, I mean, there's so many areas of uh, climate action that is so important. And I think one of the big issues is really looking at the money for climate change. You know, I mean, part of the reason we have to sort of mobilize action and change is that we also need to ensure that funding goes towards developing countries, particularly who have to make this transition and may not have the capacity to do so. So I think climate finance is a huge area that's going to become really, really important. Yeah, as we transition, as the world transitions to to a zero carbon future, because you have to see the money moving in that direction. And there are all sorts of arguments and debates on on how exactly this money should be generated and, you know, distributed and whether it's through tax reforms, whether it's through making sure that rich countries, you know, owe up to their promise they would do under the Paris Agreement. And this includes 100 billion a year by 2020. So we're already in 2020, but we haven't seen that money. So it's, I think, the pressure on making sure that we have the financial means to move to this transition. Okay, thanks for that. And as a communication specialist, what do you think can or should change about the way the media reports on climate change. Should the narrative change? Is is this something that you already see that's happening or should happen for that matter? Yeah, I mean, I think globally there's such an upsurge interest in climate change. I mean, if you just look even in the past two years, you know, there's a lot more media coverage on the average person is a lot more interested and aware of climate change. And we look at, you know, the phenomenon that is the, the young school strikers in different parts of the world started and the movement started by Greta Thunberg. And so there is a very, very marked shift for those of us who are working on, you know, looking at narratives and media. There is definitely a marked shift in, in the discussion, you know. Um, for one, I think we definitely need more journalists working on climate change, mm-hmm. uh, but not just specifically on looking at climate change as a single issue, but really the intersection of climate with other things. So whether it's social justice, whether it's labor rights, workers' rights, whether it's uh, human rights. So it's about having this focus that really is a very big picture focus and that can take into account how climate change is influenced by so many other factors in our lives. And obviously, you know, when we do see extreme weather events, I think one of the things we have been trying to do more and more is when we speak to journalists is to say, you know, there has to be some sort of acknowledgement of the impact of climate change on extreme weather events. So it's not always easy to attribute every single cycling to climate change, but there has to be an acknowledgement that these things are increasing because of climate change. Like you can't write a story on farmer suicides in India without acknowledging that climate change is a big factor in, you know, recurring droughts and recurring failure of crops. Yeah. So it has to be these connections that have to be made. Yeah, we're seeing more and more of that, and that's hopeful. Okay, that's good news. Should uh, climate activism become a thing in India already started? I mean, you mentioned Greta Thunberg. There are, you know, some people in India are doing this already. We keep hearing instances, but is it something that should become like a full-fledged climate strike? The word climate activist is also one that's a bit complicated because, you know, maybe now people associate climate activism with 
the global marches that have been happening, you know, right. uh, these past couple of years. And most of those marches have been happening in actually in the in the Western world, in big cities in Europe and the United States. And, you know, we've seen some of that happen in India and other places as well, but maybe not on the same scale. And the emergence of extinction groups like Extinction Rebellion. But, you know, the, the thing is that I think there have always been climate activists. You know, when we talk about people, even before climate change became part of, like, mainstream discourse, mm-hmm. we've had environmental defenders, yeah, in many parts of India, but also in other in South America, in Africa, you know, who have been frontline defenders of nature, who've Mm -hmm. who've been so connected with nature that their livelihoods depend on it. And so often these are people who who paid the highest price. You know, they've often been killed, arrested, um, tortured, threatened, and that is continuing. So indigenous people, local communities continue to actually be on the front lines of climate activism if we want to broaden that definition. And I think there is a space for marches and uh, mobilizations and and all of that. But I think we always have to remember that there are many people doing this already who aren't in the media spotlight. You know, we don't necessarily know about all of them. And yeah, I mean, it's good that there is solidarity, you know, with those people, with people on the front lines and people go on marches but remember that the, this is this has been a long struggle it's not it's not something new just because you know a couple of people decided to join a march is that's what i'm saying i think everyone has a role to play but i think yeah we've seen people fighting for the environment for for generations so taking away from that like do you think social media has kind of played a big role in this kind of activism becoming kind of like at the forefront of fighting against the climate crisis yeah, I mean, I think definitely like the way people are using social media. I mean, if you see the way the organizing is done, you know, by these younger groups, by the students groups and the youth strikers, I think what is actually more interesting is that there's an organizing done online, but it actually translates into feet on the ground yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. in real life. And I think that is important because... Yeah, you can sit on uh, social media and click and repost, and, but that's not going to change anything. And I think the real battle will be actually ending fossil fuel production and, and sort of dismantling the big fossil fuel companies who literally are burning the planet for profit. So, you know, we need people to sort of come out with an activism that actually puts to an end the social license that these fossil fuel groups and big lobbies are doing. And so that need the organizing should have a sort of end goal of, of doing yeah. that. And I think there's a lot of frustration in people who aren't seeing the change happen fast enough. And obviously yeah. some of that is reflected on social media because it's an outlet. It's an outlet for people to, to vent, but also again, to, to build solidarity because it's across uh, different countries. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Lastly, do you think there's a future for people in climate communications? And you know, in the next 10 years, where do you see this profession kind of going? Yeah, one thing is a profession. It's it's a job for, for many people like myself. Yeah, we work in organizations and we're, we have very sort of set objectives on how we want to do our communication strategies and 
our plans, but you know, actual climate communication or, or storytelling, I think anyone and everyone can do that. And, you know, I think encouraging people to, to share their own stories. I mean, if you think about it, if you were to go to a village in India and just speak to a farmer or, you know, for a few minutes, they will tell you the story of how things have changed. And that is a form of climate communications. You know, yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's about people. It's about what is happening to people's lives. You know, who is paying the highest price for, for the greed of a few? And what are these sort of transformational changes that we need? So, I mean, there is definitely a future. And I think we'll see more and more uh, people coming out with, and I think that's, again, one thing with social media is that it allows people to tell their own stories. So you don't need anyone to sort of mediate, you know, to be a climate communicator. And I think as the issue becomes more and more concerning to so many people they're going to feel the need to to speak about it in their in their own language in their own ways so yeah i mean i definitely think we're going to see a lot more of people speaking and talking about climate sounds good thanks so much for your insightful answers dharni it's been an absolute pleasure having you talking to us i hope that we can continue to work you know in the future as well so thanks a lot Thank you very much and thanks again for for inviting me. It was a pleasure speaking to you.